Oh my, thank you for coming Sabbath afternoon. You are brave. Uh, a lot of times when I practice uh, my sermons, I will speak them out loud, and I can't even tell you how many times in the middle of them I have just conked off to sleep. Uh, so if you do that this afternoon, I understand, I get it. Uh, and usually that's a sign to me that, okay, this is probably not going to work real well, but, you know, what, what are you going to do? So if I see uh, your eyes closed and your head bowed, I will just assume you are praying for me and I will love you all the more. So you just make yourself comfortable. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, a huge thank you to your pastor, Japhet, one of my favorite people in the whole world. And so, Japhet, I uh, have a small gift for you. Uh, don't get too excited. It's just a copy of one of my books, which <laughs> you're probably going to give away, which, again, I'm good with that. Uh, a quick story on this book that you're graciously giving to the saints. Uh, when my daughter saw the book cover, she absolutely went ballistic uh, because by the time the book came out, she was in seventh grade, but uh, when we started writing this together, she was in fifth grade, thus the title, Are You More Spiritual Than a Fifth Grader? And when she saw her picture with her dad two years ago, she said, Dad, take my picture off the cover. And we were driving to school, uh, I tried to explain to her, sweetheart, I have no say in what the publishers put on the cover. They don't ask me about any of that. Uh, I'm really sorry. Well, tell them to get it off and to print a new cover. And I said, well, it, it really doesn't work that way. They've already printed them. And, uh, I mean, she was inconsolable. Get my picture off that guy. I hate that picture. I... Uh, the only thing that finally calmed her down a little bit was when Big Sister chimed into the conversation. She said, Claire, Claire, Claire relax. you got to remember, it's a book by Dad. It's not like anybody's going to buy it and see your picture. So there you go. Um, yeah, so that's it. Okay, our last conversation... Uh, that we're listening in on Christ on this afternoon uh, is a conversation where Jesus really calls a guy to a radical, uh, revolutionary commitment. And I've always thought it'd be great fun to uh, kind of start my own revolution, right? Uh, I got a taste of this my senior year class night graduating from high school. I landed the role of playing Patrick Henry. And I got to the, recite the immortal words, as for me, give me liberty, or give me death. Just the rush of the revolution. Uh, to have a cause in life that's so important, you'd be willing to die for it. Uh, well, Jesus started this kind of a revolution and invited people to be a part of it. A revolution for goodness sake. You can find the conversation in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God 
alone. It was really interesting because the guy greets Jesus in the customary fashion as you would any rabbi in that world, good teacher. It's just a throwaway comment, which I'm sure he didn't think at all about. And Jesus hits the brakes and for some reason obsesses over the way this man addresses him. Good teacher, why do you call me good? Nobody is good except God alone. No doubt this was a bit startling to the man. Why Jesus would make such a big deal out of this phrase, good teacher. It's just what you say to a rabbi. A little bit like when people shuffle out of the sanctuary on Saturday morning, they will say something to me often like, good sermon, pastor. It was just a throwaway comment. Now, I used to put a lot of stock in that until one week, I remember two different people came out of the sanctuary and said to me, good sermon, pastor. The only glitch that Sabbath, I didn't even preach. <laughs> they were not awake enough to even notice who was up there preaching. And I just figured, okay, it's that awkward moment where you're shaking the pastor's hand and uh, you have to say something. So what do you, you say? Good sermon, Pastor Japheth. And now you know that it may not. So I know all of you this afternoon, that was a good sermon, Pastor. Uh, so Jesus makes a big deal out of this. He says, good? Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. A, a couple of observations about that statement. First, Jesus is suggesting that there is, in fact, a standard of goodness, right? Which is important to remind ourselves of this in the world of relativity that we live in now, where everything is relative, where there's no real moral north, there's no right or wrong or good or bad or black or white. Everything's great. And what might be good for you may or may not work for me. Like, we all have a different standard of morality, right? It's all relative. Uh, and Jesus would suggest, no, in fact, there is right and wrong, good and evil. And the standard of good and right is God, but there is that standard. I was sitting in a traffic jam in the beltway outside of Washington, D.C. It was a beautiful May afternoon. All of the uh, windows in my rental car were rolled down as we were just parked on the beltway. When I heard this voice from outside, as if from on high, excuse me, sir, 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 leaning forward and looking out up uh, next to me, was this uh, man who was a dead ringer for William the Refrigerator Perry, old football player for the Chicago Bears. Anybody remember him? This guy looked just like that guy. And he's leaning out of this Sears appliance delivery truck, and he says to me, excuse me, sir, do you know, does this road take me into Bethesda? So I have no idea. I'm from Washington, meaning Washington State. I lived in Walla Walla at the time. And he looked at me like, well, if you're from Washington, then you should know this. I said, not this Washington, D.C., Washington State. Oh, oh, okay. And then he asks me again, excuse me, sir, 
Do you know, does this road take me into Bethesda? (laughs) And so I repeated, I have no idea. I live on the other side of our country. I don't know. Then he asked me a question that to this day cracks me up. When I said I have no idea, he asked me, well, what's your hunch? (laughs) My hunch? It's like, my hunch? What difference does my hunch make? It's not like my hunch is going to move a city. But I knew the answer he wanted, so I just played along. I said, my hunch is that if you just stay on this road about seven, maybe eight-ish miles up ahead, you'll see this huge sign, Bethesda, exit here. Just follow all those signs. You can't miss it. And he's gleaming, you know, smiling, gold tooth, glimmering in the sunlight. And said, thank you, thank you very much, thank you. And I moved over about six lanes of traffic just in case it was bad directions, which it probably was. A lot of people sort of go through life with that worldview, right? Where Bethesda is for you, well, that may or may not be where it is for me. That there's no true moral north, no standard of right or wrong. It's all relative. No. There is a standard of goodness. And it is God. That's the second important take-home from that statement of Jesus. There is a standard of goodness, but it is God and God alone. He is that standard of goodness. In other words, if we are to be a part of this revolution of goodness, the revolution for goodness' sake, The only way it happens, the only way we become good is through God. We cannot try hard enough, white-knuckle it long enough to be good. We will never be good in and of ourselves. Goodness is only a product of God living in us because he is that goodness. And a lot of times, we don't approach spiritual life with this mindset and with this understanding. Many people think about faith in this way that I've illustrated many times through the years, like you're stuck out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean amidst 10-foot swells with the assignment of keeping 100 beach balls submerged underwater at the same time. Now, if you're a really strong swimmer, You might be able to keep this one and that one and another one and a few others, use your legs, keep a few others under the surface for a bit, but not long. Pretty soon, they all just start popping back up again. Now, a lot of times we think, okay, if I can just keep all of my sins and bad behaviors and thoughts and if I can keep all that under the surface... Then, if I can keep pride and gluttony and lust and all these things I struggle with under the surface so you don't see them, at least then you will think of me as righteous. I will live with this veneer of holiness. Uh, No, that is a recipe for feeling defeated and exhausted every time. 
Because you're never good enough. Because the only goodness is God in us as we live in Christ. Then it's all the work of Christ in us. The whole adventure of sanctification and becoming more and more like Jesus. It's not us trying harder. It's trusting that God, who began this good work in us, will be faithful to complete it in us. So what's the answer? Get out of the water and live in the boat with Jesus. Live continually in the presence of God. As we live there, he will change us. Back when my daughter Claire was going through the whole potty training season of life, we set up a reward system with Skittles. One Skittle for one thing, two for another, but that's more information than you really need. Suffice it to say, on this particular afternoon, she had not earned any treats. I was watching her from a distance. She didn't know that I was there. She was walking toward the pantry. She was just tall enough so that if she crawled up on a chair and stood on her tippy toes, she, should, she could just reach into the Skittles bowl and get her treat, even though she didn't earn it. Now, I could tell, observing all of this, that um, the, the great controversy was raging in this little kid's heart because she wanted to be good. She knew the rules, but her flesh was craving a sugar hit. And so the spirit was willing, but the flesh just could not resist temptation. And so in that moment of weakness, she dragged that chair all the way across the kitchen, stood on top, and got a handful of Skittles. And in that moment, I cleared my throat. <clears> throat> Skittles flew everywhere. Then she had the nerve to come up and open palm. What? What, Daddy? I don't, what, what are you humming me about? I, it's amazing, isn't it? How one moment she does not have the resolve to resist temptation. The next moment she is a saint. She's not tempted by the Skittles at all. What's the difference? The presence of her father. Don't fight temptation by trying hard, but rather live in the presence of he who is good. And then his goodness is lived out in our lives. So back to this conversation. We have Jesus making a big deal out of uh, the way this man addresses him. Good, why do you call me good? And then they go on. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And remember the question is, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus says, well, you know the answer. Teacher, he declares, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Now, here again, like the conversations we were a part of earlier today, this man is just kind of delusional about his own spiritual goodness. He says, I have earned this. I've done all of these commandments ever since I was a little boy. And then this statement, and I love this, one of my favorite verses in the Gospels. Jesus looked at him 
and loved him. Jesus doesn't just love the bad people, but the stiff people as well. Doesn't just love the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the prisoners and so on, but he loves the spiritually righteous people who don't understand the condition of their heart. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He wanted to be good. He really did. He didn't want to be that good. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Then, as Jesus was unpacking this conversation with his disciples, he makes this statement, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard some interpretations of this particular text because it is a bit troubling, isn't it? Harder for camel to go through the eye of the needle, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. And I've heard explanations like, well, outside of Jerusalem was this gate called the Camel's Gate, and it was very narrow and low, and so for a camel to squeeze through it, it needed to get down on all four of its knees, suggesting that it's fine to have lots of wealth as long as you're prayerful about these resources. And while that's a plausible explanation, I suppose. The problem with it is there was no gate outside of Jerusalem known as the Camel's Gate, probably just a loophole invented by some rich guy wanting to get out of the troubling nature of this statement that Jesus made. Others say, well, as long as we understand that God owns all the cattle on a thousand hills and so on, or a thousand cattle on the hills, then, you know, it's okay to, I don't know. I've always wondered if maybe what Jesus meant when he said, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, what he meant was sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Maybe that's what he meant. Because see, revolutions are radical. They cost everything. People die for revolutions. People are willing to give up everything, sell everything they have. And so maybe what Jesus was saying is this is the nature of my kingdom revolution. It will cost you everything. There's a uh, group of philanthropists that meet in Chicago that call themselves the bruised camels. They meet regularly to decide how they're going to give all of their money away. They get their name from this story in Scripture because they understand that for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, it's going to hurt. That camel's going to get bruised. But see, that's the nature of Christ's revolution. It costs you something. It costs you everything. And yes, you may get bruised and broken and bloody, but that's the adventure of God's kingdom. When you sell out, say, I trust that what Jesus says is true. 
I believe that if I just do exactly as he says, I will experience this kingdom life that he promises. And it's an adventure you can't get any other way. That's where the adventure is, when you sell out. I think back to many years ago, I got to speak at a conference at Glacier View. Uh, and one of the perks that they gave us, it was during the summer, uh, they gave us tickets to the PRCA Rodeo in Essos Park. Do they still do that rodeo there? Um, I'd never really been to rodeos before, and so this was a whole new experience to me. Maybe some of you attend that rodeo every summer. I, anyway, I was fascinated by this one event they called Mutton Bustin'. Uh, do you know what Mutton Bustin' is? Most times when I ask people that, they have no clue, but you know, don't you? Uh, it's basically, from what I could tell, is they put kids on these sheep that have serious attitudes. And I'm convinced they're not sheep at all, but rather bulls wearing wool sweaters. Uh, and so they're doing this mutton busting, and I'm watching this one particular sheep in the pen that just keeps, like it was a psychotic, it was, it was demon-possessed, I swear, uh, because it would just keep banging into the wall in the little pen. And I said to my wife, Pity the kid that has to ride that sheep. Sure enough, they eventually got to the kid who got to ride the sheep, and they announced. And now, riding the name, The Devil's Sidekick, which was appropriately titled, The Devil's Sidekick, Shannon Wilkins from Pueblo, Colorado. So they put her on this sheep, they opened the gate, that animal bolted, doing Mach 10, I'm telling you, straight to the fence, rammed that little kid up against the fence. She just dropped into the dirt like a duck shot out of the air. And she just lay there paralyzed, motionless. Everybody in the stands gasped. <gasps> I am incredulous watching all of this. So I say to nobody in particular, what parent in their right mind would let their kid do that? No sooner had that politically incorrect question escaped my big mouth and I looked over to the woman sitting next to me who appeared to be in prayer. She looked up and she said, Shannon is my daughter. I felt like the star of those old Southwest Airline commercials. Do you remember those? Need to get away? So I excused myself. And went down by the popcorn stand and waited for that woman to leave, but she wouldn't leave. She just sat there. So I waited. I waited. She wasn't leaving. I would have just left, except I really needed to go back to the bleachers there and retrieve my valuables, namely my daughter and my wife. <laughs> uh, and the woman wasn't leaving, so finally I figured, okay, just go back up there and it will be embarrassing, but... Here goes. So I go back, and as I was walking back up, they announced, oh, it looks like she's okay, and they take little Shannon off, you know, and it wasn't long after that, and Shannon joins us where we're sitting. 
Now, any fear that I had of awkward silence quickly dissipated because this little Shannon couldn't stop talking about her experience. She was rambling a million words a minute. Oh, Mom, I asked to ride the devil's sidekick because I knew that was going to be the funnest ride, and I was not disappointed. Oh, that was so much fun. I'll bet I was doing 100 miles an hour, and then, boom, when I hit that fence, everything went black. When I opened my eyes, the whole world, she says, was this big, and that's when I realized I was looking out the ear hole of my helmet. Then she says, Mom, can I do that again? After all of that drama, she wants to do that again? Well, of course. Because little Shannon Wilkins understood that that's where the adventure is. Sure, you can sit up in the stands clucking criticism complaining about the church and about but the adventures down there now yeah you're going to get criticized you're going to get bloodied and bruised and broken and it's going to hurt but that's where the fun is Lloyd Ogilvy puts it this way our spectator culture is profoundly challenged by the gospel of a god of grace who acts in the arena of human history Today, we are so used to watching before the TV set, at the ball game, in the worship service. We become expert analysts or analysts of the action replay. Brilliant strategists, great talkers, but all from the comfort of a spectator's seat. We have lost the thrill of being in the rough and tumble amidst the ups and the downs and the team commitment to put things together and achieving results against all odds. We forget what it is like to be on the inside with all of its heartache, but with its exaltation too. Our highs and our lows are experienced vicariously. We are but shadows of our real self. A lot of people live that way, don't they? Their whole world becomes reduced to a little screen where we're just so addicted to living vicariously. We're shadows of our real selves. So Jesus still invites his followers to join the revolution for goodness' sake. But it'll cost you everything. One more story, um, that of Eva Hart. I heard her interviewed some years ago now on public television. Her claim to fame was she was one of the very few remaining survivors of the Titanic disaster. The reporter asked her, do you remember that night? She said, oh, like it was yesterday. Tell me about it, he said. Well, I remember my dad lowering me from the deck of the Titanic into the lifeboat. He was going to stay on the ship, and we knew it was going down. Do you remember what your dad said to you in that moment? Oh, I repeat his words 
every morning when I wake up, I'll never forget what he said. So what did he tell you? As he lowered me down into the lifeboat, he said, Eva, I love you. Be a good girl. So every morning, I say to myself, be a good person. You know, we're quite casual in our culture today about this whole idea of goodness. We write books like from good to great. How was the movie? It was good, not wonderful, but it was good. And Eva went on to explain, you know, so I, I've tried to live the kind of life that was worthy of my dad's sacrifice. Now, her story is similar to ours. We, too, have been saved by our father's sacrifice. And from that bloody cross, Jesus calls us to live lives of goodness, to allow him to live goodness through us. And he tells us now, live a life worth saving. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me goodness or give me death. There you have a cause worth dying for. So, what do you say? Let's all join this revolution for goodness' sake.